some Republican operatives in some states are taking it as their marching orders that this was a failed effort and they're starting to work backwards from what would happen if we needed to steal the election next time around. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe, bringing you another episode of America Explained right here from The Hague. We've got a great episode coming up for you today. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and, if possible, leave a review on iTunes. So today we're going to be talking about something very disturbing happening in various states across America right now. Most prominently, it's been in the news recently uh, in Georgia, but also happening in Texas, Michigan and elsewhere. Following the concerted attempt to throw out the result of last November's election using baseless charges of fraud, Republicans across the nation are using state legislatures to advance changes in the way that elections are administered. These changes have the ostensible purpose of preventing fraud, which doesn't exist on any systemic scale, but in fact are designed to make it harder for people to vote, and even give state legislatures, many of which Republicans control, the power to overturn the results of future elections. In order to discuss these developments, I'm joined today by Karen Robinson, um, who was the regional field director for Barack Obama's campaign in Northern Europe in 2008, and also is a former vice chair of Democrats Abroad in the UK. She's also someone whose insight we've, uh, we've been really glad to benefit from on this podcast before, so it's really great to welcome you back, Karen. Great to be back. Just before we start discussing voting rights, just yesterday the news dropped that Joe Biden has announced that he's going to be withdrawing all American forces from Afghanistan by 9-11, so the anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks later this year. I wondered if you had any reaction to this news or, and perhaps how the politics of it might play out. I can understand why Biden made the choice he made, um, and he has definitely been wanting to reduce America's foreign entanglements and military engagements um, for some time. It was one of the big things he talked about in the campaign trail. Um, I think it's, you know, and it's been a very long war. I mean, there are, I mean, there is a generation of people who grew up who are fighting in, in Afghanistan now who, were, who weren't even born when 9-11 happened, which is terrifying. But it's it's always that, that kind of moment of, you know, it's a Vietnam War type syndrome, isn't it? You, you have that moment of, we haven't won. We haven't lost. I'm, like, I'm not quite sure we can declare victory here, but we're going to go home anyway. Um, the bottom line is the Taliban is still in control in a lot of Afghanistan. Life is not better there for many Afghani populations. And yet, at the same time, it's not necessarily our responsibility to stay there forever um, to try and fix it. So I think, yeah, it's, I think it's a bittersweet moment and I have mixed feelings about it. Yeah, I, I think that... Um the uncertainties of what come next are, are really probably going to color how we look back on this decision, you know, so how it plays out in Afghanistan and then also the politics of it could get quite bad for Biden if this is seen to have been a bad decision a couple of years from now. Yeah, potentially. I mean, if it destabilizes the region, then it could blow back on us. But I also think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of mood within the country that, you know, certainly so family members of, of those serving you know, would never want to abandon the mission. But equally, I, I'm sure there's a lot of desire to bring people home. And I, I think that's what's motivating him as a, a military father himself. So, yeah. All right. Well, talking of, of bringing things home. So today we're mainly going to discuss voting rights. So to start us off, could you just tell us about some of the things that you see unfolding as part of this rep Republican campaign to restrict voting rights and, and which parts of it worry you the most? 
Sure. Well, I guess let me start by putting it into context, um, because it's actually worse when you think about it in context. <laughs> um, so what happened in, in November of 2020 is we had fundamentally a surprisingly effective election. And when I say surprisingly effective, I don't mean that Biden won, although he did. And I don't mean that, you know, uh, you know, d- Republicans actually did better than expected in in House races and so forth. So it isn't about one party doing better than the other. It's that the election was surprisingly well run. Um in very challenging positions, very challenging situation with the pandemic. A lot of states opened up voting rights in new ways. They allowed for more postal balloting. They allowed for drop-off boxes. um, And as a result, participation in the election was extremely high on both sides. Lots of Republicans came out. Lots more Republicans than usual came out. Lots more Democrats came out. Um, Just participation was up across the board. Very, very few major problems were reported and virtually no instances of fraud or um, or or voter fraud were were recorded at all. So in the background of this, you know, a sensible person would say this was brilliant. This was a fantastic success. And actually, the voting innovations that we adopted to make it safe for people to vote are very popular. They're very, very well liked. Um, And things like, you know, some states had years ago moved to um, an entirely postal balloting system. My, My brother lives in Oregon, which has been all postal ballot for years now. Um, And that's been very, very effective. So postal balloting is both effective and popular. So then what happens was after the election, of course, the president refuses to concede the truth that he has lost the election. And he turns believing in this the validity of an election into a partisan issue this all happens against the background of a long-standing story that republicans have been trying to 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 tell about um ginning up fears about voter fraud which is just factually not true i mean statistically we have lots of evidence voter fraud is very very rare but by talking about voter fraud, they can t- start to talk about the types of measures that restrict access to the ballot or make it harder to vote. And that is precisely what we've seen after the election. So um, the flagship state is Georgia, where they just passed a law, um, in, which in a number of ways makes it both more difficult to vote and also makes the voting system um, you know, less less trustworthy. But it's happening everywhere. 43 states are currently having um, laws proposed or being voted on um, that would make voting harder in some ways. Um, and as I say, there's absolutely no reason for them. It is in it is purely partisan and tends to be these laws tend to be moving forward in states that have unified Republican controls. And so just to kind of break this down for people, it seems to me that there's there's kind of two categories of things that are going on now. So the first category is measures that in some way make it more difficult for people to vote or, or basically um, affect people's access to the ballot. Then there's also kind of this parallel effort, which is potentially even scarier to politicize election administration in ways that might make it more difficult for, sorry, uh, easier for Republicans in the future to kind of intervene in the counting and the certification of elections. Yeah, so the former has been, the former is classic voter suppression, (laughs) and the latter is kind of like new voter suppression. Um, So classic voter suppression, um, there have been for decades um, different initiatives and, and efforts um, including things like voter ID laws, um, you know, making reducing the amount of um, early in-person and absentee voting available. 
The second one that you're talking about, I think the flagship example of that is in Georgia, this Georgia law that I was just talking about. Part of that law removes the responsibility for administering um, state elections from the Secretary of State, um, who um, that was an individual, a Republican, by the way, but an individual who had refused to support Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the election. So it removes it from him and gives it to state controlled um, operatives, uh, Republican controlled operatives. Yeah. So this um, so this Georgia effort is very concerning. And if it were to be translated across multiple states, I mean, basically what has happened is that Donald Trump and the sort of Trumpian instinct in the Republican Party is like his instinct was to intervene and actively try and overturn the result of the election. And what seems to be happening is that some Republican operatives in some states are taking it as their marching orders that this was a failed effort. What would we need to do to make this work in the future? And they're starting to work backwards from what would happen if we needed to steal the election next time around. So it's not great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. We don't love this. Um, But I will say, um, you know, all is not lost. This is not this is not hopeless by any means. And in fact, there is a single action that the Congress could take at the federal level that would instantly overturn a lot of these concerns and would make life lots of better for various Americans almost immediately. And that would be to pass um, H.R. 1, the so-called For the People Act, um, which is a brilliant piece of legislation that's already passed the House. I think it passed the House back in 2019. It's been brought back. Um, It is on Biden's agenda to try and get this through the Senate. Um, And it basically... Um, at a federal level, it creates much, much better voting standards. It requires, for example, that all states have same-day voter registration. It requires that states um, offer, you know, good opportunities for postal balloting. It it creates a federal system of automatic voter registration. Anytime you kind of complete any action, um, like going to the DMV, etc., you would automatically be registered to vote rather than having to do it as a separate process. There are all sorts of wonderful things in this bill that would make not only voting better, but I would argue like voting life better. Like it would just make life better for voters if it were passed and it, you know, it can be passed. It's it's perfectly possible for us to get that through um, would instantly overturn a lot of the um, problems that we have at a state level. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. And I think if it's very worth dwelling on the attitude, attitude of the Republican Party on this matter, because it, it is, I, I, I find it kind of strange that, you know, we're now supposed to pretend that the Republican Party didn't just try to steal last November's election, right? And then just sit down and talk nicely with them about infrastructure and the budget and things like that. And, and you know, that, that, although sometimes that effort to to steal the election is portrayed as kind of oh that was kind of trump being crazy but it was endorsed you know as you know by a large number of republican house members senators state attorneys general you know even um brad raffensperger who's the georgia secretary of state who you mentioned earlier who performed somewhat well he performed admirably i guess you know in in this process by not 
not bowing to pressure to try to throw George's election. But now he is 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 front and center, 100% behind this new voting bill in Georgia. So there's really no part of the Republican Party that that is untouched by by this taint now. And I guess in in one sense, these Republican legislators are responding to their own constituents because their their voters have been convinced by Trump, by conservative media, that the previous election was stolen and that this is a national crisis that they need to do something about. And that kind of feedback loop between conservative media and then Republican policymakers and legislators who who you know, who, who, who are forced to act basically according to whatever kind of bullshit conservative media spews about this issue. I just wonder if, because if, you say, you know, you talk about being optimistic, but do you think that, that there's, there's some kind of pathway to bringing these people back into some semblance of, of reality and, and, you know, having them operate on a plane where everyone can agree that the last election wasn't stolen, so we don't need this kind of stuff now. So I think in a way you're giving re- Republican legislators too much credit by saying that they're responding to the to the to their constituents. Because actually, I think it's in a, in a funny sort of way, it's kind of the other way around. Republicans in this past decade have realized that they can govern as a minority party that they do not have to win a majority of the votes on a number of different levels, right? Like, so as we've talked about, they have veto powers in place in places like the Senate. I mean, the Senate in the Senate, you know, 50, like something like 18% of the U S population is represented by about half of the half of U S senators. It's it's incredibly unrepresentative and it always skews in, in Republicans favor on the electoral college skews in Republicans favor, gerrymandering, of House districts, excuse me, Republican favors, the judiciary, excuse me, Republican favors. They don't need to win a majority of the American public in order to um, at least come very close to dominating U.S. national politics. And from their point of view, their incentives are all there. So I'm, I'm kind of coming at it the other way. Like the best way to make them be reasonable is to force them to be reasonable. So like the only way to create a more balanced and bipartisan politics that is concerned with what is in the best interest and indeed the the wishes of the American people would be to rebalance the system so that they are forced to do so. And it's no longer like from a rational point of view, Republicans are behaving perfectly sensibly, right? Like you want to push your agenda as far as you can push it. That's why it's your agenda, right? Like you have a set of beliefs. This is what you want to do, even if it's not popular. If you don't have to do the hard work of winning votes, because you can find other ways to hold power, like morals aside, that's a rational thing to do, right? (laughs) So I think we need to pass that, like we have a very small window during which we very, very narrowly um, have a lock on government. And I think we need to use that window to fix the political structures so that it will be possible to engage in bipartisan conversations again because right now it is not it is not reasonable for republicans to conduct bipartisan negotiations with us they want us to fail at every level and it's in their interests for us to fail um they don't they like they're, they're not interested in nor should they be from a purely rational point of view like morally ethically yes they should be trying to do what's in the best interests of the country but for them why should they so i think ironically it is bypassing 
by whatever means necessary, like by hook or by crook, by passing, um, you know, this kind of federal legislation, that is when it will become possible once again to actually run a genuinely competitive election cycle and have a genuinely competitive public conversation on policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so when you talk about this this short window that exists, just, just to kind of spell this out for listeners, so firstly, the fact that there'll be the midterms in, in 2022 and history tells us that it's very, very likely that the Democrats are going to lose control of at least one of the houses of Congress there, if not both of them, because they have very, very thin margins. And I guess there's also the um, the new round of gerrymandering, um, well, <laughs> redistricting, sorry to use the official term, but <laughs> but gerrymandering is, is unfolding in the states right now. So there's this really, really narrow window to, to try and do something at the, at the federal level. Do, do you think, I mean, so far, I don't see a great deal of evidence that the Biden administration is making this one of its top priorities. I mean, do you think it's the case that they're going to kind of move through these big spending bills, the things that they're able to do with reconciliation, and then hopefully move on to this issue? Because that's what I, I'm really hoping is going to be the case. Yeah. Um, I think I think they're, the Biden administration, which, by the way, is doing a bang-up job as far as I can see. Like, I'm really impressed by how quickly and assertively they're moving to get their agenda passed. Um, they're very much the art of the possible. Right. So if they see a window like this infrastructure bill coming so soon after um, passing the COVID relief bill, which was you know already substantial spending, they just saw a window and they're like, we're just going to blow right through this window. Right. We're, we, we can. So we will. Um, and the legislation is popular and we know that like they know that they can keep their whole coalition on side for it. Like there are really constructive discussions being had amongst the Democratic caucus on the infrastructure bill where like we don't all agree but we all agree we want this bill to pass. So it feels like everyone's being really constructive, even if people don't, if people have different asks of the bill. I think the voting rights bill, I do think it's high up on the agenda, but as for the reasons I've talked about before, it's less of a art of the possible type of thing, right? So there's a much trickier path. And I also think like, yes, you want to move swiftly on it, but then we need to very carefully keep our coalition in line. We actually need to change the minds of some people within our coalition. And it might be better if that happened after they've experienced some pain from not being able to get the things they want, if you see what I mean. It's like Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, who are, you know, reliable Democratic politicians, um, but don't want to overturn the filibuster us asking them a thousand times, please don't you want to turn over to them? Please don't you want to? Please, please, Joe, Kristen, please, please, please. <laughs> it's not going to change their minds, right? Like they don't want to be pressured like that. We kind of need to seize the moment. And I think Biden's pretty good about knowing how to do that. Like he doesn't just yell at people and try to make them change their minds. Like he's pretty good at figuring out when is the moment to apply pressure? When is the moment to use a carrot rather than a stick? If, if you put yourself in Joe Manchin's shoes, then it seems to me that one of the things that he most wants to accomplish is to differentiate himself from the National Democratic brand in the eyes of people in West Virginia. So this is a senator from a state that, that votes heavily Republican, voted for Trump, and he, he wants to get elected again next time, right? 
And yeah. so, you know, when, you know, Biden um, proposed a $15 minimum wage, and I think Joe Manchin came out and said, no, it should be $13 or $12. And, you know, yeah. just an attempt to, to, to show that he's trying to do something different, that he's trying to, in his framing, I guess, to moderate what the, the, the party is doing. So I guess the hope is that if you give him enough chances to also show that he's done that and that he's he's kind of stood up for this different definition of what it means to be a, a Democrat, as he would understand it, yeah. then hopefully he's eventually going to come around to, 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 to these kind of big structural changes that... I think the future of the country, to my eyes, so demonstrably depends on these changes that, you know, it's hard for me to fathom being a Democrat and not recognizing that and not coming around to it eventually. Yeah, I mean, look, I share the frustration, but I think, you know, as a, as a progressive, I always try and think like, you've got to think about your theory of change, right? Like, what's the reason why somebody who doesn't currently agree with you on something like the filibuster is going to come around and i feel like progressives misplay their hand on this a lot because i hear a lot of progressive wing people saying like well we should primary joe manchin that's not a disincentive he would love to be primary like primary joe manchin from the left would make him so happy because to your point that's exactly what he wants he wants to be able to say i'm not a national left-wing democrat and yet Actually, Joe Manchin, who drives me crazy in lots of in lots of ways, is actually a pretty reliable vote for democratic issues on a lot of like most finance things. Voted for the COVID relief bill. I bet he'll vote for the infrastructure bill. Like he's actually a pretty kind of pro pro labor, pro working class, classic old school Democrat in that respect. So like he doesn't want to engage in culture war stuff, but he's a pretty reliable vote. So like that's that's the point of intersection right like that's the interesting thing it's you know he does want a higher minimum wage he doesn't want it to be 15 dollars. but like let's take let's 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 take him at face value for the things he cares about and let's see if we can work together on that um so i mean i like just purely from a practical point of view like picking a fight with the progressive wings exactly what he wants so why give him why give him that it's not not gonna help like it it gives him more incentive to be hard-nosed yeah, and I, I, I also I, I share this frustration um, with uh, progressives who make this argument because also, you know, without, I mean, without Joe Manchin, you don't have the Senate majority. And, you know, if you run a progressive in West Virginia, probably going to lose that seat, you know? I mean, it was possible for Obama to, to have, um, have 60 votes in the Senate because there were more Joe Manchins. <laughs> You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. talked a little bit about about intra-democratic politics here just another interesting thing that's that's come out of what happened in georgia specifically was these kind of tensions between the republican party and corporate critics of um the, the voting rights legislation I, I i wondered what what your reading of this was and whether you really ascribed any weight to what was happening or is it just kind of window dressing you know where where both sides kind of it's a pr stunt basically for for corporations to be able to look socially conscious 
And on the other hand, when Republicans criticize these corporations for what they call woke capitalism, they're able to kind of play as working class champions. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. So, like, don't get me wrong. I don't think corporate America is woke at all. I think Republicans (laughs) are totally misreading that. I think corporate America is quite correctly identifying that standing up for a baseline American principles like democracy is pretty low cost, right? Like there's no, um, their customers are not going to dislike them for standing up for um, democratic principles. But B, they're also, and I was I, I was watching a, a TikTok rant about this earlier, like the reality is, to the point I was just making about, you know, Democrats, Republicans are trying to rule as a minority party, right? Corporations go where their customers are. And the reality is that there are more Democrats, statistically, more of us. They're spending more money. They tend to be younger. They tend to be the customers that brands like Coca-Cola and Nike want. So if you're making a purely business decision and you have to align yourself on one side or the other of this, you're definitely going to align yourself on the side of where your customers are. It so happens that you also then get to align yourself with kind of long-established democratic values. And also, by the way, sorry, I'm thinking like a PR person, and also, by the way, you get to distance yourself from criticisms that you might have had about lobbying you might have done about trying to reduce regulation or or tax burden on your business. It's a win-win from their point of view. Like, why wouldn't they do it? Yeah. I, so um, I, I, I had a column in, in Guardian today about this issue and I, the, the way that I've been looking at it, and I'll put that in the show notes, by the way, for any listeners who want to have a look. I think it's actually quite an interesting opportunity for Democrats as well, though, to just try and kind of weaken this pillar of the Republican coalition, because it seems to me that you increasingly have a tension where Republicans, on the one hand, really more than ever want to play as the working class party, the, uh, particularly the, the party of the white working class and of, of lesser educated voters, while at the same time being the corporate party. And I think the, you know, the, the, the way that they try to combine those two things is that they perform cultural politics for working class voters, and then they perform kind of um, plutocratic economic policy for corporations and for, for business supporters. And I think it's it's really interesting for Democrats to to poke at that tension and to 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 try to encourage businesses. I mean, you know, another aspect of this is that it, it seems to me that if you're an American corporation and and you look at what's happened in the last couple of years, you see that the Republican Party now stands for incompetence essentially, you know, among many other things when it comes to managing the economy. I mean, Trump's management of coronavirus was atrocious and atrociously bad for the economy. And I think there's a real chance there for for, for Democrats to kind of emerge as the party of, of competent economic management. But I guess that, you know, at the same time, and I'm expecting it hasn't come yet, but I'm expecting a lot of backlash from this article I wrote in The Guardian, because at the same time, of course, many, many, many members of the Democratic coalition, and particularly on the progressive wing of the party, are very skeptical of closeness to, to big business as well, and, and, and rightly so. So it, it's kind of a bit interesting that in a way, it seems to me, American business is becoming just, just slightly more politically homeless than it used to be. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And I think I would I would sort of... I, I am very wary of the Democratic Party 
embracing big business to its heart um i think it is right that like we need to build a broad coalition and where there are like there have been plenty of times where on policy issues we might have kind of interests that align but i also think that one of the things that like has been a hallmark of the biden administration so far which has been really interesting is like he's biden himself is a pro-labor guy right he's a union guy out of you know detroit out of out of pennsylvania and and, and delaware and, you know, Amazon is facing unionization threats across the country. I think, you know, the, 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 the push to raise the minimum wage, which Biden and Democrats have been, you know, fully behind. I mean, a $15 minimum wage not that long ago was considered wildly radical. And now even the kind of very mainstream parts of the Democratic Party are fully on board with it, which corporate America hates. So, like, that's the other thing, you know, Facebook, you know, Mark Zuckerberg you know, must be very aware that there is the prospect of of new regulations um, on the tech sector, given, you know, given some of their behavior in recent years. So, like, I think we should we should not be afraid of working with uh, corporations where our interests align. But I think we, we definitely don't want to put ourselves in the position of being the party of business. I think it would be a very uncomfortable the uncomfortable relationship given the trajectory of like not just the progressive wing of the party but like the entire kind of economic policy apparatus of the democratic party is moving in a different direction i think yeah and that um so i it reminds me that a, a few minutes ago when we started this topic you said that you don't think corporate america has become woke and i guess you know that's the that's the crux of this right that you know if if, if corporate america were woke then maybe it would be easier to welcome them into the democratic coalition but they're not so yeah it it, it, it isn't yeah i mean they're not they're not woke to like they love to do a pride day celebration for example and that's great like i'm very glad to see them show solidarity with minority communities 100 percent. but are they woke to inequality you know are they woke to the role that they have in perpetuating kind of exacerbating economic hardship and inequality around the country are they woke to um you know the like the need for redistribution um, um, via taxation. No, of course they're not. Like, and again, <laughs> what I was saying about the Republicans, it's like rationally, it's not in their interest to be. So what they want to do is they want to brand themselves as being more tolerant so that they can like continue to try to advocate for what's in their own interest. And like, I don't resent them doing it. Like that's, that's their job. Right. So, mm -hmm. but let's just be very clear about what that is. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, um, so thanks so much for joining us today, Karen. It's, it's been really uh, great to hear your insights again, and I hope to welcome you back on the show at some point in the future. Anytime. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.